Hey everyone! I wanted to share a special promotion we're running. Inspired by the Robbie Hardy episode where she shared her unbelievable story about how she used a magic eight ball to help her decide whether or not to sell her company, we're giving away our very own Hutch Magic 8-Ball to anyone who writes a Founder Shares podcast review. All you need to do is write a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And let us know by sending us an email to podcast at hutchlaw.com. That's podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at hutchlaw.com. Just have the courage to, to be an entrepreneur if you come across a good idea don't be afraid like regardless of your age or you know what you've done or what you've accomplished you know have the courage to go out there and do it you know i mean i think you know for me that was like one of the biggest limitations hesitancies of going down this path of being a founder and being an entrepreneur is just the anxiety stress of you know doing something that's completely unfamiliar Hello, and welcome to the Founder Shares podcast. We're so happy that you've chosen to spend some time with us. I'm your host, Trevor Schmidt. I'm an attorney at Hutchison, a law firm in Raleigh, North Carolina. We work with founders and entrepreneurs in technology and life science companies, start up, operate, get funded, and exit. We are daily inspired by the people we work with and want a chance to share some of these stories with you, our listener. So whether you're already an entrepreneur want to be one someday, or are just fascinated by the stories of how a business goes from idea to success, or not such a success. This podcast is for you. Today's guest is Sean Leland, founder and CEO of Elevation Oncology, which seeks to bring precision medicine to the forefront of every cancer treatment journey. The Elevation story is remarkable for many reasons, but what's amazing is that it's only two years old and it's already gone through two significant raises and an IPO in June 2021. Yeah, the company's raised close to, you know, $200 million since the company was formed. And uh, yeah, very active in terms of, you know, operating as it relates to running the phase two Crestone study, which is a, a phase two, you know, study with potential registrational intent to be an accelerated approval pathway in solid tumors with neuregulin one or NRG1 gene fusions. And we're also, you know, really working aggressively to build an industry leading precision oncology pipeline, you know, through our partnership and collaboration that we've recently put in place with Keras Life Sciences, as well as other traditional business development related activities. Okay, let me see if I can translate that. Elevation Oncology has already identified a promising drug candidate that inhibits specific tumor growths. They're also working with outside partners to expand the availability of testing that seeks to match each tumor's unique genomic fingerprint with a purpose-built precision medicine. They're working to enable a personalized treatment plan for each individual patient with cancer. You can see why investors are so excited. Sean and the Elevation Oncology team have the potential to solve a major problem that literally affects the lives of everyone in the world. When patients come in, you know, you're diagnosed with late stage, end stage cancer, you know, you're used to and accustomed to just going in and being diagnosed and being treated with, you know, standard of care chemotherapy or cancer immunotherapy, which, you know, is, you know, not only toxic to your cancer cells, but toxic to your normal cells. And, you know, what we're looking to do, what the field of precision medicine or precision oncology is looking to do is 
we're looking to understand what genomic alterations are leading and causing your cancer because those are specific to your cancer cells. And the idea concept and, and what we're looking to do is based upon you know, an understanding of the genomic makeup associated with your cancer cells, you know, we're looking to deliver therapeutics that block those genomic alterations that are causing your cancer cells to grow and proliferate. So that's really kind of the main premise of what we're looking to do. And that should lead to drugs producing uh, a higher likelihood of a positive clinical trial because it's we're delivering a therapeutic that's specific to what's causing your cancer to grow and proliferate, in addition to the fact that it should have a much more favorable safety profile because it's distinct to your cancer cells. And for the most part, it's not being delivered and causing uh, side effects to normal healthy cells as what you would see with you know, standard of care chemotherapy or cancer immunotherapy, which is not specific to your cancer cells. Yeah, so at least as I understand what you're saying, it sounds like there's a couple of different parts to it. So, you know, there's going to be the genomic testing that people would need to have for whatever cancer that they have, and then kind of identifying amongst, you know, that what what it is that you need to target, and then having drug development on top of that to then specifically go after those targets. So is Elevation pursuing kind of all of those independently, or are you, I mean, how, how do you approach that? Yeah, I mean, so we, we've really kind of taken this four-step process you know, I think first of all is, you know, doing what you exactly just highlighted. It's understanding the genomic makeup. So we've partnered with, you know, diagnostic companies that do diagnostic testing and specifically next generation sequencing. And then we've also partnered with patient advocacy groups to promote the awareness of genomic testing, because if you're not getting your cancer tested, you're not going to have an understanding of what genomic alterations are leading to your cancer cells growing and, and proliferating. And if we don't know the genomic makeup of your tumor, it's pretty tough to deliver a tailored therapeutic specific to your cancer. And you're basically relegating yourself to just standard of care chemo or cancer immunotherapy products. So we, we kind of start with the diagnostic testing component you know, and then we look to further identify from a genomic perspective, which genomic alterations are truly driving your cancer, because not all genomic alterations are created equal. There are certain genomic alterations that lead to, you know, your tumor growing and proliferating, and they are the one and only thing driving that. Um, that's typically seen in situations where you have genomic alterations like fusions, um, and also to a certain extent, uh, gene mutations that can exist. Um, there are other genomic alterations that are just bystander passenger events. So they're there, but they're not contributing to tumor growth and proliferation. There's also inactivating genomic alterations that also are not relevant to what's causing your tumor to grow and proliferate. So this is another area where we partnered closely with diagnostic companies, with major academic centers to understand which genomic alterations are truly driving your cancer. So we can make sure to target those with either, you know, a monotherapy or with a combination approach. You know, and then I think the last piece, you know, kind of like what we do is, is really bringing that all together to, you know, marry those genomic testing results 
to make sure that we are delivering a therapeutic that's tailored to make those genomic testing results therapeutically actionable. That's helpful. And was there something, you know, before the foundation of the company that really kicked this off or was there an idea or a product that you had in mind when you got started? Yeah, no, it, it's it's very specific. You know, it's it's one of those moments that like you you never forget, and you know you play, you know, in your mind like time and time again. And uh, for me, forming Elevation, like that whole idea concept, you know, it came to me when I was sitting in a scientific presentation at ESMO 2018 in Munich. Um, I was sitting in a scientific presentation that was being given by Alex Drillin at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Uh, he was giving a presentation on targeted therapies in lung cancer. And he had one slide in that presentation on a target called Neregulin-1 or NRG1 gene fusion, which is you know the target that Elevation is pursuing with its, its lead program in Cerebansumab. At the time, I had never seen the target. I actually knew nothing about the target. Um, but listening to him describe the target as being rare, present in 0.2 to 0.5% of solid tumors, the fact that they had seen it in 13 different uh, tumor types, and you know, probably most importantly, the fact that it carried that hallmark of being a true oncogenic driver and that it was predominantly mutually exclusive of other genomic alterations, suggesting that it should be the one and only thing driving tumor growth and proliferation. On that same slide, he also presented a, a case study that he had published earlier in the year in Cancer Discovery of 2018. And this is a case study that came from the phase one clinical trial of the GSK HER3 monoclonal antibody. And you know there was one and only one responder on that phase one clinical trial. And coincidentally, that one and only one responder was a, a patient with an invasive mucinous adenocarcinoma of the lung and they had a CD74 NRG1 gene fusion. And that patient had a dramatic response, 90% reduction on PET-CT, 19-month uh, duration of response, which was more than their four prior lines combined. So, you know, my immediate thinking of, you know, seeing the target was, this is very analogous to another target called NTRAC, you know, where Loxo Oncology and Ignita had developed targeted therapies to NTRAC fusions, you know, that led to, you know, very successful outcomes in, in patients and eventual FDA approvals of their two lead programs in uh, tumor agnostic fashion for solid tumors with, with NTRAC fusions. So, you know, there was an immediate parallel to, you know, NTRAC target, and I immediately thought to myself, God, Neregulin 1 or Energy 1 is the next NTRAC-like target. And, you know, the fact that it was amenable to a targeted therapy approach with a HER3 monoclonal antibody with, you know, using the, you know, GSK, you know, HER3 monoclonal antibody as your kind of initial proof of concept gave me confidence that it should also be druggable. And, you know, it just made me think to myself that, you know, there are a ton of companies with HER3 monoclonal antibodies that are out there they had failed and, you know, HER3 overexpressed amplified cancers. So companies viewed them as a quote unquote failed product, but, you know, made me think you could probably go out and license or acquire one for probably pretty cheap. And then, you know, repurpose them for these patients with NRG1 fusions across solid tumors. And, you know, to take it one step further, I also, you know, thought most of these programs had been in the clinic. So, I'm like, you could probably find a phase two ready asset that's got registration ready GMP drug product 
that's got a recommended phase two dose, that's got a robust safety database, and you could probably go right into you know, a phase two clinical trial in solid tumors with NRG1 gene fusions and use that for a potential accelerated approval pathway. So that one slide is, you know, really what bore the vision to, you know, form elevation. You know, so I came back from that conference. I pulled every publication on NRG1 fusion. I think at the time there were 65 of them, read through all 65 of them. Uh, that gave me even more confidence that, you know, there was a viable path forward. And, you know, because of my, my background in, you know, business development, oncology search and evaluation, I had a lot of existing relationships that I was able to leverage with, you know, biotech pharmaceutical companies that had these HER3 monoclonal antibodies. So we kicked off a, a diligence project to, you know, look at HER3 monoclonal antibodies, you know, figure out which ones might be transactable. And those discussions ran in parallel with the investor dialogues. And, you know, that put us, you know, in a, in a situation after having run diligence on, you know, north of, you know, five HER3 monoclonal antibodies and a, a number of investor dialogues to, you know, close the Series A financing on July 12th of 2019 of 32 and a half million. And then literally that afternoon, closed the asset purchase agreement with Merrimack Pharmaceuticals, um, where we acquired Cerebansumab and MM111, which is a HER2, HER3 bi-specific product. You see, that's the kind of story that I, I just love to hear. Part of the reason for the, this podcast, because you know, it's amazing to think, you know, one slide and one presentation. Yeah. You know, you know, years from now, I don't know how many lives you're talking about impacting, but you know, one of these things takes off, and you, you yeah, know, all because of that one slide. It's it's a pretty amazing story. So, I mean, tell me a little bit. You, you mentioned your background, kind of positioned yourself to really be able to take this idea and, and really create a company around it. So, what was your background, or what is your background? Yeah, so so my background, I'm a PharmD by training. Um, you know, after I finished pharmacy school, I ended up doing uh, an industry fellowship program with Bristol Myers Squibb in Oncology Medical Affairs. So I've always had this, you know, strong passion for oncology and helping patients with cancer. I started my career after the fellowship with Eli Lilly, um, working in oncology medical affairs, placing preclinical and clinical research collaborations that you know, allowed me to develop, you know, great relationships, you know, scientific as well as clinical relationships with, you know, leading key opinion leaders uh, across the field of oncology. So I did that for about a year and a half. And, you know, I feel like so much of my story is the right time, right place. Um, I was, again, like at a, a scientific congress, you know, meeting, and I ended up you know, speaking with someone, had no idea who the person was at the time, but he was the chief scientific officer at Lilly. And uh, through that discussion, he's like, you know a lot about oncology. He's like, I just had a spot open up in my group. You know, you could come on board and do oncology search and evaluation, scout assets for licensing companies for M&A, um, and lead the technical due diligence. I'm like, this sounds really cool. I'm not really sure uh, what this entails, but you seem to have a lot of confidence in my ability to do this. So I ended up exploring it with, uh, with my current manager, you know, she was open to the idea. What was supposed to be a, a six-month temporary assignment turned into a three-month temporary assignment, um, and I ended up coming on to that that group full time and found myself working hand in hand with the oncology leadership team at Eli Lilly to perform due diligence. You know, where I gained a ton of cross-functional experience, and this was really kind of the the first time where 
you know, I got this really kind of all-encompassing view of what it takes to develop a product all the way from, you know, diligence is really associated with, you know, looking at every aspect of that drug discovery and drug development process all the way through to commercialization and understanding your kind of level of confidence and what you would be willing to pay to license or acquire an asset. So I, I did that for four years at Eli Lilly and then decided to make the move to biotech. So I actually went back to medical affairs um, and helped start up the medical affairs team at Ariad Pharmaceuticals, where I spent a year. I then went and served as head of business development at Argos Therapeutics for four years. I did a, a stint in you know, strategic consulting. After that, I was part of the team that ran diligence on a program that was acquired by Endocyte, which is the lutetium-labeled PSMA program um, that was then uh, acquired by Novartis and recently approved. And then I was also a part of the diligence team that led to the product acquisition and license from Infinity Pharmaceuticals, pulling Dupalisib into Veristem um, as well, and then ended up joining Veristem full-time as, as head of business development for two years prior to forming Elevation in July of 2019. Now, dur during that time, did you have in the back of your mind that you wanted to find a candidate of your own that you were going to take out to a company, or was that something that really hadn't been thought of at that point? No, it's it's something I had never thought of. To be very frank, I mean, I, I had never, you know, really envisioned going down this path of being an entrepreneur, you know, and now publicly traded company CEO. I mean, it's not something that I would have foreseen in the cards, you know, especially at my age. It's something that I could have seen maybe doing, you know, kind of like much later in my career. But you know, again, right time, right place. I mean, coming across this you know, idea, concept, I just felt like it was too good to pass up. And, you know, once I got the idea in front of investors and saw their enthusiasm for this, the execution piece on the product acquisition, like that was, you know, very familiar to me with my business development, search and evaluation background. So like that part was easy. The, the investor piece, raising the financing was something I had not done before. Um, you know, it's more so just, you know, taking that leap of faith and, you know, being confident in your decision. I mean, I think, you know, even to kind of take this, you know, I think one step further, I mean, I, to be very frank, I, I didn't know whether I was or was not going to be cut out for being an entrepreneur, um, being a CEO of a company to where, you know, when I initially formed Elevation, I was, you know, named the CEO because I was the sole founder of, of the company. However, you know, with, discussions with my lead investor, I said, I'm not sure if I'm cut out for this. You know, I think you should be the CEO of this company. You know, Steve Elms and I agreed that, you know, he would serve as, you know, interim CEO. Um, you know, I think after operating the company for a year, and then, you know, once we closed the Series B financing, I felt very confident that I was the person to run this company and the CEO. And obviously the board, you know, was fully supportive and, you know, supported that transition, you know, into me, uh, being the full-time CEO of this company. So was there one moment or, you know, you mentioned the, the financing and the closing of that, but was there one moment where you're like, no, I can do this. This is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, I think it was more so just having been in the position and having operated the company. I mean, obviously, you know, there was the oversight, you know, from Steve, you know, as the interim CEO, but, you know, I was managing, overseeing, running all of the day-to-day the -day operations. So, you know, I think, Early on, I didn't know whether I would be capable of doing that or not. 
Um, and I think having done that for, you know, a year gave me a lot of confidence. We were able to hit, you know, kind of the key milestones that we were looking to accomplish. I mean, there's not a lot of companies that, you know, moved from company formation to, you know, initiation of a phase two study with registrational intent in 12 months time. So I think doing some of these industry precedent setting events provided further confidence in that kind of you know, transition of being a first-time entrepreneur and the fears and anxiety that come with that. Um, But I think once you're in the role and operating and you see that you have the ability to do that, you know, it gives you the confidence, I think, to to make that transition. So, you know, people talk about CEOs wearing a lot of different hats. Is is there one that is particularly challenging for you and one that is more particularly rewarding? Or do you just like the kind of the package role? Yeah, I mean, I, I do like the package role. I mean, there's aspects of the CEO role that, you know, I had not done before and that are a learning experience, which which is great. I mean, I, I feel like as an entrepreneur, you're you're really signing yourself up to be a serial learner. I think if you get complacent, something's not right, or you've lost your passion or something along those lines. Obviously, there are aspects of the CEO role in terms of you know, building, growing the company that I'm I'm very familiar with. And I feel like I did those in, you know, my business development roles in the past. You know, the things that are less familiar with me and, you know, the the favorite question of, you know, what keeps you up at night, you know, is is really kind of being able to build at the same pace that we've been building at over the past years. It's like, how do you maintain that same trajectory and can you maintain that? you know, over time. And, you know, so the things that I feel like keep me up at night that are, you know, the more challenging aspects of being a CEO, you know, in the industry at this time, um, I think is really focused around workforce planning and just being able to, you know, grow the company. There are a ton of companies that have been formed over the past, you know, 12 to 18 months during the, the COVID period. Um, it's allowed, you know, a lot more companies to go public in a much more expedient manner. So, I mean, the job market is extremely competitive and good talent is not easy to find. And, you know, at Elevation, we're not just looking to put a, a warm body in a seat. Mm-hmm. Um, we are looking to build a team of top tier talent. Um, so there's no interest in in settling just to fill a role or fill a position. Um, so, and I, I think, you know, when you're looking for that top tier talent in a competitive environment, it, it takes time to do that. So, I mean, I think those are the things that, you know, I've found to to kind of be the most challenging. I think the the other thing is continuing to, to build the pipeline. So how, how do we get to building an industry leading precision oncology pipeline? You know, again, with more companies out there, other companies are looking for additional assets. It just makes the process so much more competitive. So you need to be able to bring a competitive advantage to the table to make a pitch to, you know, why a company should license or sell their asset to you. I mean, like they want to make sure that it's the right home and that you are going to be able to deliver on, you know, what you are telling them you're going to be able to deliver on. And I think that's honestly one of the things that really differentiates elevation from others because you know we're not looking to just do the same things that other pharma biotech companies are doing we are looking to you know really take the industry forward and take precision oncology to the next level i mean i think 
some of the things we've done on the operational side, in particular with you know partnerships that we've put in place with diagnostic companies, you know, we've created an operational engine that has basically allowed us to operate and run a clinical trial in a very cost and time efficient manner, even in very, very rare genomically defined patient populations. Mm -hmm. And that takes partnership. It takes collaboration with academic centers, you know, community oncology practices, as well as arguably more importantly with you know, diagnostic companies. So, you know, around the phase two Crestone study, you know, we put nine partnerships in place with diagnostic companies. And the vast majority of clinical trials are run in a very simplistic manner. They're run typically in collaboration with a contract research organization or CRO. And the CRO selects your sites and that's it. That doesn't work in you know rare genomically defined patient populations. You know, so for the phase two Crestone study, you know, we went, we're able to leverage existing relationships with key opinion leaders to understand which clinical trial sites had patients with NRG1 fusions, what sites were testing for these patients, how many patients they had identified over the past six to twelve months. So we were able to rather just letting you know, the CRO go out and say, these are our top enrolling sites for oncology clinical trials. We were able to actually go around to, you know, leading KOLs at major academic and community oncology practices and say, this is the patient population we're looking for. Are you testing? Are you able to identify these patients? How many of them have you seen to make an informed decision, which allows you to accelerate things from an operational perspective? And then we've layered on top of that these diagnostic partnerships because these diagnostic partnerships, they're the ones running the genomic testing. They know where these patients are and which doctors are identifying them. And they have mechanisms now that, you know, have, you know, moved kind of the traditional clinical trial operations, you know, forward and are are taking that to the next level. So we've been able to leverage these just-in-time clinical trial models you know, where we carry no site overhead unless they actually identify, you know, a patient with the genomic alteration. And in this case, you know, NRG1, it's only at that time when they identify a patient um, that we can, within 14 days, activate that site. Um, And once we activate the site, you start to carry site overhead. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the biggest limitations is that you tend to open a lot of clinical trial sites and they never identify a patient. So, Mm -hmm. you know, throughout the entire you know, trial, whether it's one, two years, three years enrollment period, you know, plus follow-up, you know, you're paying that site, whether they identify a patient or not. Um, That's not capital efficient. Um, You know, we only want to pay for a site, ideally, if you identify a patient. Right. Uh, You know, so that just-in-time clinical trial strategy, the collaboration with the diagnostic companies, um, the ability to activate sites, you know, within 14 days or less, that gives us a big operational advantage. And I think, you know, when we're going through, you know, a competitive licensing process or a product acquisition process or, you know, some other type of business development process, being able to speak to those types of advantage in terms of, you know, what makes Elevation different, why you should trust us, you know, with your baby, with your product, like those things differentiate and I think allow us to be, you know, more competitive in a, a very competitive environment. 
Yeah, so it sounds like there's a number of advantages that, that Elevation can offer kind of for its existing pipeline and for future pipeline. What are some of the challenges, you know, other than the ones that you've already mentioned that not even just are facing Elevation, but yeah, facing precision oncology or, or making that a, a realistic possibility? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, first and foremost, you know, it's just promoting awareness around genomic testing. I mean, I think, you know, when you look at cancer as a whole, We've done a great job in, in one tumor type, you know, and that one tumor type is, is non-small cell lung cancer, where somewhere between 50 up to 90% of patients that are diagnosed with, you know, end-stage advanced metastatic non-small cell lung cancer are getting, you know, next-generation sequencing and diagnostic testing, which is great. And, you know, the main driver for that is there's, you know, multiple targeted therapies that are available to where, you know, if you do genomic testing, there's, you know, a decent likelihood that you will have a product that's tailored specifically to your genomic alteration. Um, the reality is, is that, you know, one cancer only makes up, you know, 10% or less of, you know, all cancer cases across the world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the limitation right now is the additional 90 plus percent you know, where only, you know, somewhere between 10 to 20% of those patients are getting, you know, next generation sequencing or genomic testing. That honestly is the biggest crux and limitation associated with, you know, the field of precision oncology right now is getting to a, a world where not just non-small cell lung cancer, but, you know, the broader oncology community is getting, you know, next generation sequencing and genomic testing where there's this ability to deliver a tailored therapeutic. The lack of genomic testing, is that a lack of awareness or is it a, a cost consideration that some people just can't have their, you know, genome tested or is it a mixture of both? It's multifactorial for sure. I mean, I think cost is a, a definite limitation. We're starting to see you know, more and more genomic tests getting, you know, reimbursed or getting approved. I mean, I think the limitation right now is there's only, you know, a couple of genomic tests that are approved, at least as it relates to, you know, next generation sequencing. So, I mean, I think access in terms of those that are FDA approved and, and, and in turn reimbursed, you know, it's a limitation, you know, the cost limitation is, is a clear limitation as well. And I do think a big part of this is education and awareness. If, if you pay close attention and you do a lot of research, you would realize that there's ability to get your tumor sequenced. But I, I would bet if you know, you've done a survey and perhaps there is a survey that's out there where you've surveyed the, the general population, I would imagine that you know, the vast majority of, of cancer patients, unfortunately, don't even know that this is an option. Um, you hope in that scenario that you know, the oncologist that they go and see, you know, educates them and makes them aware that this is an option. Um, but I don't think that that necessarily always happens. I mean, I think, unfortunately, it's even a struggle, I think, for most patients when they're diagnosed with cancer, to even figure out which doctor to go see, because the natural reaction is, oh my God, I was just diagnosed with cancer. I'm just going to go to the doctor that is in closest proximity to me. Um, that's not necessarily the best choice. Um, I mean, these doctors, you know, are tending to see every different type of cancer, um, and it's very challenging for 
you know, kind of the, the generalist oncologist to be an expert in every single tumor type. There could be a scenario where the community oncologist that's seeing every different type of cancer is five minutes away, but you have the, the major academic center, which is, you know, 30 minutes or an hour away, and you don't know that there is, you know, a, a global expert in, you know, the tumor type that you were just diagnosed with that, you know, has options to clinical trials, you know, and may be able to deliver a therapeutic that's tailored and specific to, you know, what's causing your cancer, as opposed to going to see the the closest oncologist that, you know, might just treat you with standard of care chemo or chemo immunotherapy because they don't know that you have something that's actionable that's driving your tumor growth and proliferation. So I think those, you know, to me are, you know, some of the the biggest limitations. I mean, I think in general, I mean, COVID is obviously a challenge. You know, hospitals are plagued right now with cases of COVID. I think that's less of a limitation for, you know, precision oncology. I mean, I think cancer patients, you know, are, are not stopping the need for treatment, you know, just because there's a, a surge of COVID. And I, I still think, you know, at treatment centers across, you know, the U.S. And, and globally, you know, these patients are, you know, a high priority given the fact that they, you know, have pretty much exhausted their their therapeutic options um, and there's an urgent need to, to see them. Yeah. So that raises an interesting question as well. I mean, how has COVID impacted elevation, you know, aside from kind of the broad issues for, for healthcare in general, but I mean, has it impacted how you guys are operating? Yeah. I mean, it, it honestly really hasn't had a, a significant impact on, on how we have operated, you know, Elevation when I first formed the company was, was set up as a virtual company. You know, we've continued to operate as a virtual company and for the foreseeable future, we'll continue to operate as a virtual company. So with the virtual operations, you know, it really hasn't provided any significant limitations. And I think, you know, as I just shared, I mean, the, this need, unmet need for end-stage cancer patients that have exhausted all therapeutic options, those patients are are still getting treatment. They're still going on trial. Like, they're still, like, they're a very high priority. It's not like it's a, a benign disease or disorder or something along those lines to where, you know, you're going to be pushed out because, you know, someone with COVID-19 is, is taking priority over you. Um, so we haven't really had any challenges associated with, you know, patient enrollment associated with the phase two Crestone study. I mean, I know you could talk to other companies and I'm sure they would tell you it's, it's hampered their enrollment, you know, but we, we haven't had that impact. But that I think is really, you know, distinct and specific to, you know, the unmet need and, and patient population that we're looking to cater to. And I think for us operating in the virtual environment, it's not like, you know, we're carrying, you know, extra GNA costs associated with the lease, you know, that we're sitting on that, you know, people are not going into the office or something along those lines. So I think the virtual environment has actually really helped us from a, an operational perspective, as well as from, you know, an overhead cost and, and GNA perspective. I think the other things that I've learned is, being a, a virtual company without, you know, in-house manufacturing or research capabilities, you know, you're relying on your external contract research organizations and contract manufacturing organizations. And, you know, with the, you know, surge of COVID-19, you know, vaccines, as well as, you know, others trying to develop therapies to go after COVID, 
the supply chain in particular on the manufacturing side is quite saturated. So, you know, whereas it may have taken you six to 12 months to secure a manufacturing campaign in the past, you should start counting on more like 12 to 24 months now, just because there's, you know, so many other competitors that are, you know, looking for those slots to be able to manufacture their product. So it just takes, you know, I think much more advanced planning um, if you want to be able to continue to to maintain your your timeline. So those are the things that we learned and paid close attention to and like we're really on top of, but you're doing this for the first time and you, you know, we're not seeing these changes in, in real time. It's something that could really blindside you if you were you know, working off, you know, kind of your original timeline assumptions as opposed to COVID-19 timeline assumptions. Yeah, yeah no, that, that all makes sense. And I understand, I think I read from your website that Elevation's doubled its headcount just in this past year. What's that like going from kind of being a small founding team to, you know, just consistently growing, especially when you're doing it in a remote environment? What are some of the challenges that you face to kind of manage to that? Yeah, I mean the growth growth has been quite significant. I mean, so you know, when when I formed the company in uh, July of 2019, all the way up until March of 2020, we were we were two full time employees. Mm-hmm. You know, we you know after getting all the way through you know 2020, we were a total of eight employees, and you know we are now currently a, a total of 14 employees with plans to grow to slightly north of 30 by the end of this year. To me, there's probably two key challenges associated with with the growth and the build. It's, you know, we put in place, you know, a very, you know, kind of like family oriented, work hard, play hard, balanced life environment at, you know, elevation and being able to continue to maintain that culture um, where everyone's very passionate and driven by, you know, helping patients with unmet needs and rare genomically defined cancers. You know, it's like, how do you continue to maintain that as we grow at such a rapid pace? And, you know, the additional aspect of that that makes it challenging is you're doing this in a virtual environment. One of the ways that we have been mitigating that risk is by putting in place monthly, quarterly, in-person meetings, which, you know, we've been able to conduct over the past couple of months. But, you know, with the surge in the Delta variant, I, I hope and I'm optimistic that these will continue. But, you know, I mean, I think it's it's clear even from a, a recent, you know, culture survey that we ran internally at Elevation that, you know, people are starting to get concerned around traveling again. You know, so, I mean, there there are people on the team at Elevation that I have yet to meet in person. And I think, you know, one of the challenges is being able to build relationships with all of your employees. And, you know, there's a definite aspect of that that can be done, you know, virtually via team Zoom or your favorite video chat. But it's a challenging thing to, you know, completely replace, you know, the value that comes from those in-person interactions. So I'm optimistic that we hopefully will get into a a future and hopefully a a near-term future you know, that's going to allow for more of that in-person interaction and, and relationship building that allows us to continue to maintain the culture that we built, you know, as we grow at a pretty expedient pace. Well, it makes me think back to one of your earlier comments about how Elevation, you know, is not really looking just to have warm bodies in the seats, but you really want to attract high quality candidates and kind yeah. of integrate those into the team. And to your point, that's just as 
can be really hard to do over a video screen. Yeah, but I, I think the, the the flip side of that, Trevor, is that being a, a virtual company has, I think, also catered to our ability and flexibility to recruit top tier talent. I think prior to COVID, it, it was almost like unless you were a company based in Boston or San Francisco or you know the New Jersey, New York metro area, you know, recruiting top tier talent was was a challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the beauty of you know the virtual world is that you know you can work from anywhere. So our our talent pool isn't just focused on one of those three geographic areas. Our our talent pool is really like all over you know the US and and globally. Um, so that allows us to cater to a you know a much more diverse background and it allows us to you know, make sure that we're getting top tier talent because, you know, we're not focused on you being based in, you know, a certain location. It's not, there's not an expectation where you have to come into a specific corporate office or anything along those lines. Well, I'll shift gears just a little bit and ask you if if you want to, if you're giving advice to, you know, another founder, another CEO about identifying investors or working positively with investors and, and kind of doing that fundraising aspect, what kind of advice would you give them? Yeah, I mean, I think the advice I would give is is do your diligence. You know, as a founder, you have a, a vision for the company that you are looking to build. And I mean, I would encourage, you know, founders to do their homework, to look at other companies or companies that are following a similar model and figure out who those investors are and those companies, because those are probably going to be the individuals that you want around the table. When I think about investors, you know, I I don't necessarily just think about them bringing finance cash to the table. Um, I think about strategic investors that are going to bring more than that. You know, those that, you know, may come with operational expertise. You know, you're not just looking for someone that's going to provide funding for the company. You're looking for someone that's going to add value, whether that's, you know, as a strategic advisor, whether that's as, as a board member, you're not just looking for a name, you're looking for, you know, those that are also going to be able to help and contribute, you know, from an operational standpoint. So I think those are the key aspects. And, you know, our investors, our board members have also been extremely instrumental in terms of, you know, the success and the pace that we've been able to move at, and I think is is a core foundation of, you know, what we do at Elevation. And I would encourage any other founder to carry a similar mindset because it allows you to build a very strong foundation as you know you start to build the team and build out the company. So, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, how much of your time kind of early on was spent with fundraising. Um, and maybe you could speak to that just a little bit, but also then, you know, does having the 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 series A and B behind you and then the IPO behind you, does that allow you now to to shift your focus a little bit more towards operational side of things or is, is yeah. you know, that side of it always in the forefront of your mind? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, this, this is probably the first time over, over two years where I've, I felt like there's been some breathing room to, to operate. You know, I think any founder, you know, CEO of a company, like their primary responsibility is to make sure the company is well-funded and, and well-capitalized. And that's, you know, something we've done a fantastic job of of doing, you know, over the past, you know, two plus years, um, you know, with securing the, you know, $100 million IPO, 
um, as well as the cash we had remaining from the Series A and Series B financing, you know, puts us in a situation where, you know, we have cash on hand, you know, all the way through um, and into Q2 of 2023. So, I mean, you know, we basically have cash on hand for, for two years, you know, which allows us to now kind of like go into a period where like financing is not in like in an immediate need, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously as a publicly traded company, you know, you have to have a very focused investor relations PR plan, um, you know, which we have in place that we're, we're executing on, you know, it's important to continue to maintain those relationships, continue to keep those people updated because the company will clearly need more capital in the future. But, you know, it's not an immediate need, you know, given the, the recent public financing, you know, so it, it has allowed me to kind of go out of this, you know, mode where I felt like my primary responsibility for the past two plus years has been more or less kind of streamlined and focused on financing to go back into, you know, some of the things that like I love and I'm most passionate about, which is being able to like operate and like figure out how we grow this company. Well, that leads into kind of my next question. I mean, what is your why? What is your why for doing this? What is it that gets you up each morning to to go to work at Elevation? First and foremost, um, you know, we are catering to a patient population that has exhausted all therapeutic options. I mean, these patients have nothing left. All it takes is changing one patient's life, you know, allowing that, you know, high school senior who potentially would have passed away before graduation to graduate from, you know, high school and kind of move on to the the next stage of her, her life and career. I mean, those are the types of moments that we all live for and strive for and like work for. I mean, it's all about being able to help people provide hope and, and change lives. I mean, that is the one thing that is, is such a core value to everyone at Elevation that, you know, comes from the top down. You know, everyone that comes to work at Elevation carries that same passion and, you know, will will do whatever is possible to, you know, get patients, you know, a drug that has the potential to to change their life. So we are the Founders Shares podcast. And so I always like to ask our guests, you know, if there was one piece of advice that you'd like to share with a new founder or someone who wants to be a founder one day, you know, what, what would that advice be? To be frank, I mean, I think it's it's just have the courage to to be an entrepreneur. If you come across a good idea, don't be afraid, like regardless of your age or, you know, what you've done or what you've accomplished, you know, have the courage to go out there and do it. You know, I mean, I think, you know, for me, that was like one of the biggest limitations, hesitancies of, you know, going down this path of being a founder and being an entrepreneur is just the anxiety stress of, you know, doing something that's completely unfamiliar, you know, so I think just having the courage and confidence, if you come across a good idea to do that. I think the other piece of advice I would give to any founder who's thinking about going down this path is build as broad of a network as you possibly can and surround yourself with, you know, the right people, you know, having connections to, you know, industry leading experts, key opinion leaders in the field of interest, those things allow you to surround yourself with experts that are going to give you the right advice and that are going to support you that will back your idea 
And, you know, having that type of support will give, you know, investors a whole lot more confidence when you go to pitch your idea and concept. Um, so those would be the two, you know, words of advice that I, I would provide to any kind of founder or first time entrepreneur. And at least to me, they seem to be very closely related because I imagine as you surround yourself with advisors and people who can encourage you to, that helps provide the courage that you need to say, yeah, you know what? I can do this. Yeah. This is the step I can take. Yep. Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, Sean, this was, this was fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time and excited to see, you know, what the next two years of Elevation brings and, and excited to see where you lead your team. So thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. Sounds good, Trevor. Thanks for having me. That was Sean Leland, founder and CEO of Elevation Oncology. You can find more on Elevation by visiting their website at elevationoncology.com. That's elevationoncology.com. If you're a founder or business owner and need legal advice, we'd love to hear from you. You can start by visiting our website at hutchlaw.com. That's H-U-T-C-H-L-A-W.com. We have the capacity to help you out with just about any legal need your company may be facing. We're passionate about the innovation economy and ready to help you on your entrepreneurial journey. This show was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Trevor Schmidt, and we'll talk to you next time on the Founder Shares Podcast.